Well, good morning, Barberton campus. Uh, as Annie said, my name's Adam. I'm uh, privileged and pleasured to be with you uh, this morning as we continue on in our conversation in our series. I hope that each of you have had an enjoyable Thanksgiving weekend, maybe got an extra nap into, uh, enjoyed some leftovers. Um, I'll forgive you if you seem a little tired this morning. That's okay. Uh, how many of you had the opportunity yesterday to catch at least part of the game? I see some Buckeye gear around here, right? Ohio State versus Michigan happens a Saturday of Thanksgiving every year. 10-1 Michigan versus 10-1 Ohio State for the right to go to the Big Ten Championship against Northwestern next week. Known as the game. College game day was in town in Columbus for this big festivities. Now, depending on how much you know about the game, you may interpret the events or circumstances of a game very differently. For example, there was one point of the game where Michigan had a very long drive. They went down and scored a TD, and then their ensuing kickoff kicked off to the Buckeyes, and McCall was at kind of the one-yard line right at the edge of the goal line, and kind of the ball went right through his bread basket and bounced 10, year, 10 yards into the play of field where Ohio State Buckeye scrambled to get on top, but a Michigan player dove on it. And in a course of six seconds, Michigan scored two TDs, right? Your interpretation of that play is very dependent on how much maybe you saw of the game right? Maybe if you knew the final score, if you kind of had some idea to understand the momentum and the tide, maybe the fact that that play was in the second quarter right before halftime and Michigan had a chance to tie the game with a two-point conversion, right? And so often I think that experience is sometimes how many of us feel about the Old Testament. We feel like we get just a play or maybe a glimpse in, but we don't always understand the context surrounding the game to understand maybe the importance or the significance of a particular play, right? Maybe we learn about a few characters or names or stories, but we don't understand the highlight reel in order to see where it fits in the story. That's our hope with this series of understanding the Old Testament, that we are giving you the ESPN Sports Center two-minute highlight reel of the Old Testament so that you can begin to understand the stories in a framework that makes sense, so you can understand the relevance of being in the second quarter compared to kind of the end of the game. What we've said is that the summary of the Bible is the unfolding story about God lovingly calling the most precious part of his creation, you and I, to himself through his son Jesus Christ, with the promise of transformation and eternal life to those that say yes to him and condemnation and punishment to those that reject him. I don't know about you, but... Uh, the Old Testament was always very confusing to me. I remember in college, it was the first time that I learned that the Old Testament wasn't written in a fully chronological order, all right? 
And so last week we finished halfway through the series, right? The historical narrative of the Old Testament. What that means is that we've kind of laid out the entire timeline, so to speak, of the events related to uh, the Old Testament. And so this week we kind of jump in in a genre or a type of literature that we find in the Old Testament. So what happens in the section of the Old Testament that we're going to take a look at today coincides with the events already covered over the last few weeks. I would encourage you, encourage you if you haven't been here, to hop online, take a look, follow along with us in our E4 class to kind of better understand the Old Testament. And so the genre of the Old Testament that we're going to take a look at today is known as the wisdom literature. It contains three books in the Old Testament, and it, two of those books are predominantly written by King Solomon. He was the final king in the United Kingdom. He was David's son, and so he is the primary author that God inspires to write two of the books that we have. The third author is unknown. The three books that we're going to take a look at and kind of explore today are the books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes in Job. Not Job, but Job. Okay? And so in these three books, we see all of them seeking to answer the same question, but from a different vantage point. How does one live a good, successful life? We see the book of Proverbs that's written much from the vantage point of like this wise, young, intelligent teacher who has many sayings and statements that applied generally will work 90% of the time. Think of it like this. An apple a day keeps the doctor away, right? That it's good wisdom that generally speaking... If you eat healthy, right, avoid the bad things, then you can minimize your health concerns. And so we see that the source of wisdom that anyone who chooses to respect the source that is uh, conveyed as this idea of lady wisdom throughout the Proverbs reaps the benefits of li living accordingly. Okay, so... What we say about the book of Proverbs is that it's pithy, memorable sayings that encourage people to pursue wisdom. Now, the second book of Ecclesiastes is asking a different type of question, right? It's saying that if I follow the proverbial statement of a apple a day keeps the doctor away, what happens when someone who does that gets an illness, right? It's navigating those other 10% of the circumstances or the situations, right? Where is God in all of this? If, if you read Ecclesiastes, it comes across as kind of a, a bleak or maybe dark kind of statement because they're questioning the meaning of life. It's saying everything is meaningless, and there's three general statements that the author is wrestling with. He's wrestling against the march of time, right? That 
you and I progress and over the course of generations, the life that we live is forgotten. He's talking about the idea that each of us are destined to die. That no matter how moral or good we may be, each of us suffer the same fate. That at one point, we will finish our time on earth. And the third kind of theme that's explored is life's random nature. That at times, it seems like those who are wicked reap benefits. Those who seek to do good suffer harm, right? That a natural disaster can wipe out a town. And so they're asking this question, right? Where is God in these circumstances? And what seems bleak at the end begins to say that if we don't have control over these circumstances, well, we should trust one who does. That we should entrust our lives to the ones that can control time, legacy, and life's randomness. I'd like you to write this if you take notes about Ecclesiastes. Apart from God, life is empty and unsatisfying. Now, the third book of the wisdom literature answers a third kind of different question to this satisfying and fulfilling life. It's this statement of the doctor who suggested that I take an apple a day, is that doctor good? Right? Because what we see is this story that plays out that we're introduced to this figure that we come to know as Satan. And Satan has a conversation with God and he says, hey, you know uh, that guy named Job? He is only following you, honoring you, because you're blessing him with material things. And God allows Satan to tempt and inflict suffering on Job. And we see that he loses most everything. Then he has a group of friends that for many chapters, they're questioning and wrestling with how can a good and just God allow this to happen to what is perceived an innocent man. Towards the end of the book, we see that God answers Job, but in a rather indirect way, that he takes them on this cosmic virtual tour to show that he is holding the entire universe in control through his wisdom but at the same time that he cares about you and I's concerns and our sufferings. He ends up restoring back to Job what he lost twofold. And I don't think that is the principle we apply to each of us as we navigate suffering, but it does remind us that God is concerned and cares about you and I, our lives in the minute details even though he has control over the universe. And I'd like you to write it this way for Job. God allows human suffering for his own purpose. So these are the three books that we find in the wisdom literature. So what I'd like to do this morning is give us a glimpse as these books talk about this idea of wisdom, and we're going to apply it to one area of life that each of us can relate to. 
And then we will conclude with how does one gain or find wisdom. The area of life that I want to talk about is relationships. And we will see this kind of in the beginning of the book of Proverbs. Look with me in Proverbs chapter 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction in prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to those who are wise. Prudent may not be a word that we're as familiar with, but it's uh, right judgment, common sense. To those who are simple or naive, who lack experience, that we are able to gain or learn wisdom. That idea of gaining or learning wisdom is the Hebrew word yada. And what that means is to know. Now, when we think of knowing in our culture, that's often the gathering or assimilation of facts. But in Hebrew culture, to know means to be intimate and aware in applying what we know. Think of it this way. I had some time off this week, so uh, like any good homeowner, I have kind of my checklist of different things I want to do around the house. Now, these have uh, probably been a long time in the waiting, but I had some exhaust fans that I wanted to change. So I went online kind of learned a little bit about installation of exhaust fans, uh, measured the openings, and kind of peeked in my attic to see all the blown insulation that I'd have to climb around, right? So I had a basic knowledge about exhaust fans. But I knew that this job would require more than knowledge, but I'd rather someone with wisdom. So I decide to save it when I can ask my dad to come help, who has 40 years of knowledge within the trades. He's a plumber. So I knew that as I climbed in the attic and avoided falling through my ceiling, right, that as I'm trying to take this exhaust fan out, that having someone as a source of wisdom was much better in this case, right? That is what the wisdom we find in this section of scripture. I'd like you to write this definition of wisdom down. Wisdom is skill in successful living. It's more than knowledge. It's knowledge applied. So now let's think of it through this avenue of relationships. First, I want you to think through what we would know about friendships, right? instinctively we may know friendships matter because we are formed by friendships right that's why I have a daughter who is in first grade and I'm significantly concerned about the different people she sits with on the bus the different people that she hangs out with at school because I know her friends will influence her behavior in the way in which she perceives and thinks about the world right? We know it experientially. Some of us can think back to maybe our childhood, our teenage days, maybe even college days for some of us, right? That we know hanging out with the wrong crowd can have significant consequences. But what we see in the wisdom literature is that God states it emphatically. 
Look with me, Proverbs 13, 20. Walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. The righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leave them astray. So to be wise, we must become very good at choosing terrific friendships. Like it or write it this way. Wise people choose friends cautiously. Throughout the wisdom literature, we're introduced to three different types of people. Those that are wise, those that are fools, and those that are evil, right? And the outcome or maybe description of these people are a little different than maybe I initially perceived. Maybe we think of these people based upon the end result or their actions, but that's not the case. These people are determined wise, a fool, or evil based on the position of their heart and how they respond to truth, right? That those who are wise want to know the truth and live in response to the truth. Those who are fools want to ignore the truth and continue in their folly. Those who are evil hate the truth and cause harm to others. Who is your inner circle of friends? Right? It's not just important for us in elementary school, but it is just important for us now. That we are formed by friendship. I know we don't get to choose our family, and we're called to love everyone, but who are those that you seek advice, wisdom, counsel with? Would you say that you travel with wise companions? If not, why not? Are you seeking to be wise yourself? Would others look to you and want to include you on their inner circle because of your humility and your desire to learn and to be shaped by God? Wise people choose their friends cautiously. Now, in wisdom literature, it doesn't just stop there. It also gives us suggestions for how we should interact within a friendship. Look with me at Proverbs 27, 9. Oil and perfume make the heart glad. In the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel, right? That we can enjoy a friendship because of the counsel we receive from one another. Look at what Proverbs says related to the tongue, that in the tongue possesses the power of life and death. That our words have the power to encourage, inspire, and uplift the soul. But at the same time can do great harm and destruction and devastation for words not kept in check, right? That someone's counsel as a friend is of extreme importance. Look what Proverbs says elsewhere about friendship. Better an open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. This verse is a little bit of an oxymoron. It makes us think, generally, wounds bad, kisses good. 
but not the case in this proverb, right? Wounds are coming from a friend who is more concerned about our good than how we feel about them. They're more concerned about being a friend rather than just a fan, right? They're the ones that's going to let us know when we walk out of the bathroom and we have toilet paper on our shoe, right? Or X, Y, Z. They're concerned. They're willing to look us in the eye, even for the sake of our friendship, and have the courage enough to speak truth to us. They care about us. I'd like you to write it this way. That wise people express, display, candor, and counsel carefully. I love what Tim Keller says about friendship. He says that we need to offer people hunting license in our lives in order to call us towards holiness, to enter those dark places in secret gardens to call us towards becoming more like Christ. Candor is openness and frankness within a relationship. Do we offer people the freedom to be frank and candor with us? We're told to navigate it carefully that as important as the content in which we share, we should also be aware of the circumstances when we offer and give counsel, right? But wise people choose to display candor and counsel carefully. They don't avoid uh, speaking truth in love, right? They don't take the path of least resistance. But a true friend, a deep friend, is willing to call us to become more like Christ. Now, Proverbs or wisdom literature doesn't just stop at this idea of friendships. It also speaks a lot into romantic relationships as well. We see in Proverbs 31, a wife of noble character who can find. She is worth far more than rubies. A wife of noble character is her husband's crown, but a disgraceful wife is like decay in his bones. What we see is Solomon kind of as a father writing to his son to say, choose very cautiously about who you're going to spend the rest of your life with. This is of utmost a significant decision, one of the most important decisions that you will ever make. He's offering kind of stern warnings of saying, realize the importance of this decision. Look in Proverbs 21, better to live on a corner of a roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. How many of you would sign up to live on a corner of a roof, right? Better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. A quarrelsome wife is like constant dripping on a rainy day. Restraining her is like restraining the wind or grasping oil in one's hand. Now women, if you're feeling a little bit more cautious, this can be equally applied to men as well in the context of being wise in choosing character in a date. This is a father writing to a son. And what I think Solomon is saying is it's better to be single and alone than to make a poor choice and be married and miserable, right? Because what he is saying is that wise people prioritize character in a mate. 
And we see the book of Proverbs kind of give us this uh, description of someone who has um, great character, uh, character traits that would be honoring to God. Right? We already talked about it. What type of company does that person keep? Proverbs 13. Is that person teachable? Proverbs 8. Proverbs 11. Does he or she listen to the advice of others? Proverbs 12. How does she treat animals? Proverbs 12. Very interesting. Does he have compassion for the poor? Proverbs 21. Is he a hard worker? Proverbs 6. Is she quick-tempered? Is he argumentative? Proverbs 14, 19, and 27. Is he able to hold his tongue? Does she have a calm spirit? Proverbs 17. How does he make money? Proverbs 15. Within the wisdom literature, we're told to prioritize character and as we wait to allow God to develop our own character. And so the question that we are posed to ask each other is, am I becoming what the person I'm looking for is looking for? Right? As I wait and navigate the landscape of choosing someone to do life with, am I allowing God to develop my character to be more like his as I observe and look at the character of someone I may choose to do life with? Now, the last piece of advice that we're going to look at this morning related to wisdom literature has to do with people who are already in a committed romantic relationship. We see in Proverbs chapter 5, For the lips of an adulterous woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. It's attractive. It's appealing. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, Sharp as a double-edged sword, her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path that's far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. We would see in Proverbs 4.23 that we're told to guard our heart for everything we do flows from it. Wise people choose to set boundaries to avoid moral failure. I'd like you to kind of think of it this way. That in this passage and all throughout Proverbs we see kind of the pain of living a life separate from God's desires, right? Away from sexual purity, that there's the idea of broken families, of deep psychological pain, of hurt and sorrow. And God says, I want you to respect and have reverence for my command to avoid adultery. Now, what wisdom does is that it seeks to keep a path far from a moral failure. So wisdom concerns itself with the decisions before an act of adultery. What wisdom begins to concern itself is that I better be cautious of maybe sharing too much about my spouse with another female, right? Especially negative things about my spouse. 
I better be awful cautious that I don't maybe have conversations via text or phone or uh, DMing with someone outside of work that may be a coworker that I have, right? Maybe I should be cautious of riding in a car or going to lunch or having dinner with a coworker or someone of the opposite sex, right? Because when it comes to that point and there's a business trip or some sort of tempting situation, I've allowed myself in a way to not be concerned about being much closer to the act of adultery. So what wisdom concerns itself is it understands that every moral failure is preceded by a series of unwise decisions. And it allows its conscience to reside here seeking to keep a path far from a moral failure because it respects and knows the pain with which God tries to keep us from. You can apply it in the terms of sex outside of the covenant of marriage, right? That God's desire is that sex would be shared in a committed relationship, a covenant, so that one could have intimacy with each other, right? And that there is a series of unwise decisions related to choosing to engage in this. And what wisdom concerns itself with is all along this path of allowing our heart and our conscience to reside here, keeping a path far from here, establishing boundaries in a way of avoiding moral failure. Now this topic of wisdom, right, it can be applied to many areas of our life, not just relationships. We see in wisdom literature that we can find an exploration on how you and I should go about doing our jobs at work, how you handle prosperity or wealth, how you handle money, how one would navigate suffering, how we seek to determine morality and ethics. What we find in these three books is wisdom is skill in successful living. So the question we should be asking is how does one gain or what does the pursuit of wisdom look like? Because we see in Proverbs that this pursuit is the most worthwhile pursuit that we can choose to engage in. How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get insight rather than silver. Choose my instruction instead of silver. Knowledge rather than choice gold for wisdom is more precious than rubies. And nothing you desire can compare to her, right? Because gold, silver can buy almost anything in this world. But it can't buy us everlasting joy in eternal life, right? That wisdom is the greatest pursuit that we can choose to engage our life in. Cherish her, she will exalt you. Embrace her, she will honor you. Talking about wisdom. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing. It preserves those who have it. Now, within wisdom literature, we're told where not to look for or find wisdom. It says wisdom doesn't necessarily just come with age, right? That many people choose not to learn from their folly and choose not to become wise. That wisdom doesn't necessarily just come from hardship right? That 
we may have a significant trial or a tribulation and some of us may choose to become bitter as opposed to better through that trial, right? That we don't necessarily gain wisdom. That wisdom doesn't necessarily come from wealth or poverty. That it isn't a status of life. But what we see in all three books of the wisdom literature is the source of wisdom. Look with me in Proverbs 1. In verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Look at Job 28. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil and understanding. And at the end of Ecclesiastes, Solomon kind of sums up the matter of life and he says this as his conclusion, which could be a thesis statement for the wisdom literature. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. If you take notes, I'd like you to write it this day. Wisdom is found in esteeming the Lord. Now, when the Bible talks about fear, it's not fright or terror, but it's rather respect and reverence. That if I have respect and reverence for God, I can understand that he has a perspective much broader and more global than I do. Right? That he sees far more than what I do through my own circumstances. I can have a perspective that he loves me completely. That he was willing to live a life on my behalf and suffer a death that he didn't deserve because of his love for me. I can know that he has a purpose for my life and that it is the best, most fulfilling, most satisfying life that I can live. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 say, Trust in the Lord with all your heart putting our full weight in confidence in who he is and lean not in, on our own understanding. In all of our ways, acknowledge him and he will make our path straight. Because leaning the ladder of our life on our own understanding can easily deceive us, right? That our hearts are desperately wicked. That if we begin to make decisions based solely on our emotions, that we need to be cautious of where our heart may lead us, but rather to have respect and reverence for God and his desires, knowing that he knows far more and wants to give us meaning and satisfaction. I'd like to leave you with four quick suggestions of where one can gardener or gain wisdom. The first is listen to God. Pursue wisdom in the word of God. That an understanding of his special revelation to us will help us to be wise. Psalm 119, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. There's two ways to state the ultimate goal of, of life. One is positively stated, one negatively. The idea of glorifying God or choosing not to sin. Glorifying and sinning are mutually exclusive, right? And what we see is that 
as I choose to listen to God in his word, it should bring about heart transformation, not just behavior modification, right? That the goal of spending time is to hear from God, right? I often ask myself the questions that when I spend time with God in the morning is, by 10 o'clock, how much am I remembering, right? I, I don't need to restate exactly everything that I read, but am I flying through, is my goal to get through the Bible or is it allowing God to get through to me, right? Do I engage with the Bible to become smart or rather so it leads me to God's heart, right? Have I positioned my life in a way where I can consistently and constantly listen to God through what he's revealed because he's let us know everything that we need to know about his moral will and to live a wise life. Second suggestion, we learn from others. We talked about this in terms of our friendship, that we pursue wisdom by walking with wise companions. I love one of the values of Grace Church. We share life together. We cannot live without honest relationships. We are resolved to figure out how to love God, love each other, and live on mission together. That God never intended us to do life alone. That often we receive inspiration, correction, encouragement from observing and doing life with each other. That's why one of our hopes and desires is that you would choose to move from rows to circles, right? That you would have people in your life that you can be vulnerable with, that you can learn from, that you can navigate life with, right? Because often we learn, we're inspired, we're encouraged from observing others. Third thing. Look to Jesus. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is wisdom embodied. Right? Jesus is fully God in a human body that lives a life of wisdom out of respect and admiration for who God is. So we can look at the life of Jesus and gain wisdom, but we can also look to Jesus as our source of wisdom. That we recognize in humility that we're not wise in and of itself. That no matter how much knowledge I may receive that I need God's Holy Spirit to do life with in order to become wise. In choosing to recognize our need of God and our, Him being the source of reconciliation allows us to begin this path of wisdom by choosing to say yes to Him of recognizing His free gift of salvation that was fully displayed through His work on the cross. The last suggestion 1 Corinthians 3.18, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you're wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. Live as a fool. 
not as a fool we talked about in Proverbs related to their folly, but as a fool to the rest of the world. Knowing that your choices to seek to honor and follow God with your life will leave others perplexed and confused, right? That this world is not our home, that we live from a different perspective and paradigm, that as we pray and consider different situations that we feel God may be calling us in, others from their own perspective of convenience, of comfortability, of materialistic desires may consider us to be fools. Maybe even others who would claim to be following God. That we have to be comfortable in order of separating from the world in which their value system is very different. That we would live as a fool. As I invite the band up, I'd like you to consider what's your pursuit of wisdom look like? Have you made it a priority in your life? Do you value it more than gold or silver? Have you made the desire to acquire wisdom your number one priority? I think that when I leave this life and God willing my children are still living that one of the greatest compliments that they could ever say about their dad was that he was a wise man maybe a a wise guy and have a little fun with that right but more that he feared the Lord that he lived his life out of response for what God offered him and chose to live in response to the proportion of what he believed about God? Are you seeking to listen to God? How's your discipline of engaging with God's word? Do you learn from others? Who's in your inner circle? Have you chosen to surround yourself with people who are wise? Look to Jesus as our example and model, but not just that, as the source of all true wisdom. And that we would embrace and live comfortable knowing that the earth is not our home. That we would live a foolish life to the rest of the world, wanting to honor and seek God with the gifts and the ability that he's given in order to maximize our time on earth to make Jesus makes sense.